Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us here at Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital business revolution by speaking with the business executives and thought leaders who are profoundly changing how the world works, lives, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Sean Amirati of Birchmere Ventures and Carnegie Mellon University. Sean's a longtime friend and occasional collaborator of mine, and he's already crammed a ton of experience and achievement into a relatively young life. Sean, welcome to the Cloud Wars Live podcast, and thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bob. Yep, it's a pleasure, Sean. Pleasure. Um, so, Sean, two of, of the many things you're involved with, two of the primary ones are being a partner at a venture capital company and being a professor at Carnegie Mellon, one of the world's top computer science and business schools. So could you tell us a little bit about how you reconcile the breakneck pace of the VC world with the, you know, sometimes not <laughs> so speedy realm of academia? Absolutely. Let's see if I, how much trouble I can get in with my dreams today. <laughs> You're good at that. You're yeah, good at that. <laughs> that's right. Look, the reality is that the real job, like what pays the bills and, and certainly what I think of as kind of my, my kind of professional occupation is probably more Birchmere than Carnegie Mellon. But the way I look at both of those roles is that what I'm trying to do is partner with entrepreneurs to help them achieve their goals. And, you know, as they achieve their goals, in the case of Birchmere, there's typically financial upside in that. In the case of Carnegie Mellon, it may be slightly more indirect. But I've just, you know, really spent the last six years trying to, to figure out different ways and methods that I can come alongside entrepreneurs and help them succeed. And, and to me, that's been really meaningful to do as an investor. Being an investor and getting a chance to work with technology entrepreneurs is awesome. I mean, as you guys have chronicled well, here on Cloud Wars, like the pace of change of innovation and technology is only increasing. So it's fun to be part of that and fun to be part of creating that future. At Carnegie Mellon, I tend to do my best to stay out of as much of the administrative stuff as possible and just spend time with the students, right? Which, yeah. you know, I think you had someone on from, from Microsoft earlier who talked about sort of, it all comes back to the customers, yeah. right? Like at, at the end of the day, not everybody in, in higher ed may necessarily understand this, but I think it's, be, it's increasingly obvious that like at the end of the day, our customers are the students who are learning here. And so I feel like if I can add good value to my students and help them achieve the goals that they have for their career, many of which are now to be entrepreneurs and you know, create those companies, that it, hopefully it'll all kind of work out in, in the end. And it's, it's obviously just an amazing place at, to be doing that at Carnegie Mellon because... As much as there are lots of challenges in every university, I mean, CMU certainly is just a magical place and, and is a place where a lot of the future of these technologies are being created in labs all across campus. So it's, it's really fun and I think complimentary between the two. Sean, that was a great answer. I, I don't think uh, you're going to get in too much trouble with the deans about that. No, that was Not, you know. not yet. <laughs> not yet, at least. So Very well good. said. Yeah. yeah. But, and Sean, if you're digging in a little more about what you're doing at CMU, yeah. you know, uh, tell us about the corporate startup lab that you're so involved with there, because that just seems to be something that's so essential today. And it goes back to a big point of what you said a minute ago about tying together appropriate partners or catalyzing relationships in ways that put people together to do things that they never could have done individually. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of the corporate startup lab, which I co-founded here at Carnegie Mountain. The concept behind the corporate startup lab at the end of the day is that one of the things that I observed is that entrepreneurship had become sort of a activity that was increasingly being considered as relegated 
just to 20 somethings in skinny jeans and t-shirts at, you know, <laughs> name your favorite accelerator. Yeah. And certainly that's a type of entrepreneurship. But when I think about entrepreneurship, like the definition that I often use is that entrepreneurs look out into the world, see things in the world that are not as they ought to be and build products and services that make the world as it should be and then realize economic value through that. And the problem is like when, if that's your view on what entrepreneurship is, which mine is, we can't say that the only people who should worry about that are 20 somethings in skinny jeans because they'll end up creating great things for them, but not necessarily great things for the world at large. Yep. And so one of the things I've tried to do at Carnegie Mellon for a long time is figure out how to, how to get every student who comes through the different graduate schools that I teach at to think about how can they be an entrepreneur in whatever future world career path they end up taking. And a lot of them go work at large companies. And so I started three years ago asking this question, how can a quote unquote startup exist and thrive inside of a large traditional company? And you know, we've been, been really lucky to get to do some, some really interesting research around that topic, to create some courses around that topic. Actually, you are one of the, the mentors of the course, of, so thanks for doing that. And I think it's a good sure. example of pulling people in who are experts from industry that can come alongside and say like, hey, this is how it can work. And you know, last year we had four large companies work with our students to create startups inside their companies. This year we're going to have five of them. And, and what we've really realized is that fundamentally a startup in a large company is really the same thing as a startup that probably is what your listeners' mind first go to when they think of startup. Yeah. You know, it's a couple yeah. people in a proverbial garage. The only difference is there are some additional tools, processes, techniques that you need to incorporate when you're trying to do it inside of a large company. And so we're trying to help, help explore that, help optimize that so that really everybody, you know, my hope is that through the work at the Corporate Startup Lab and other things we're doing, everybody in a few years might think of themselves as an entrepreneur, whether they work at General Electric or they work at three guys in a proverbial garage somewhere. Yeah, Sean, one of those things, right, you see in this modern world of business, you know, organizations are flattening and it's almost like as they flatten, they become more open to yep. what's actually going on in the real world as opposed to the insular world of corporate hierarchy and slow decisions and so forth like that. And I think what you're doing is not just providing the soil for entrepreneurs to thrive, but clearly trying to show these big companies, right? You don't have five or six or seven years to get it right. You know, you, that's, right. It's, that's approaching quarters, right, right Sean? So that's exactly um, right. It's I mean, got to be fun for you. It, it is. And I, th I think actually this is something that, that I've, you know, learned a lot from, from you about as well as you've sort of studied this handle that a lot of executives have grabbed onto of quote unquote digital transformation, right? Like I think at the end of the day, like all these things are pointing to the same Point, which is the rate of change is increasing. The closer you can get to your customers, the better. And as it relates to technology, products that we and problems that we used to think of as physical product problems and atom problems are now bits problems. And we gotta that means that you've gotta have a yeah. more sort of agile, customer-driven, iterative approach to, to this kind of thing. And and I think you know, there are things companies can learn, not just from that movement, which I think is really important, but also there are things that large companies can learn from these startups. And honestly, I also think there are things startups can learn 
from the big companies. Like it really can be wonderful knowledge transfer back and forth there. And Sean, just as you were describing that, the one thing I was thinking of was we spoke recently on Cloud Wars Live with Chris Lockhead, and he was talking mm-hmm. about entrepreneurs and the ones that he's known and the things he's been involved with. And he put it this way. He said, you know, successful entrepreneurs fall in love with the problem and they stay in love with the problem. And unsuccessful entrepreneurs fall in love with the problem, but then they're seduced by the solution and they mm-hmm. get overly enchanted with the solution rather than keeping the open mind on here. Are, are you seeing that play out both with your entrepreneurs and the big companies that are trying to become more entrepreneurial? A hundred percent. That to me, that is the most, that is the way that those two groups are the most similar, right? They're getting yeah. successful yeah. ones, spend a ton of time with customers, understand their problems intimately, and are obsessive about it. And I think, I think what's often misunderstood about that, so typically when you say things like that, people will quickly come back at you with, depending on kind of their age and philosophy, either the Henry Ford quote or a reference to Steve Jobs, where, the, where you know, Henry Ford supposedly famously said, you know, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Well, uh, in, uh-huh. interestingly, my friend Patrick Blaskovitz, who's a kind of another one of the lean entrepreneurship thinkers, actually called the Ford Museum in Detroit, tracked down a historian there, and, and Henry Ford actually never said that, at least according <laughs> to the Ford Museum, but, but, which I think is, is kind of a wonderful anecdote in and of yeah. itself. But I actually don't, and, and the reason he called is he and Patrick and I were talking about this one and like, I don't actually think that's what Henry Ford would have said. I think if Henry Ford had asked his customers what they wanted, they would have told him they wanted a horse that never needed to sleep, a horse that they yeah. didn't need to clean up after. <laughs> right? Like, like, I mean, I don't know a lot about horses, yeah. but the li- you know, we have a yeah. mutual friend, George Borowski, who, who has some horses. And like, my understanding yeah. is they're quite smelly to clean up after. I think that would have been high on people's, people's lists, right? And, and to yeah. me, like, this gets to wonderfully illustrate the point. Custom, you know, entrepreneurs care deeply about their customers' problems, and customers can be incredibly insightful about that. Now, they may not be great at where, where the magic of entrepreneurship is, is when you obsess about those problems, you come up with really novel solutions. You can test them out quickly, see if they actually solve it or not, right. and then continue to iterate, right? And, and the, the iPhone example to me is actually the even better example because many of us actually probably experienced this. I didn't know that the better version of an iPhone or better version of a BlackBerry was a screen with no keys, but I absolutely <laughs> yeah. knew that I hated how my BlackBerry worked yeah. when I browsed the web. And the reason I knew that is when I would get off the subway, I lived in New York when I had a BlackBerry, when I get off the subway, all of my emails that didn't have web links in it, I'd have dealt with and I'd have to go to the office and deal with the ones that had links to URLs. Now, I wouldn't have come up with the solution of get rid of the keyboard, but I certainly could have told anybody, hey, clicking on links on a BlackBerry is broken, right? So knowing (laughs) the problems deeply is how entrepreneurs, I think, come up with a bunch of different solutions, test them out, and then ultimately create magical products and services. Yeah, Sean, that, that's great. I love the, the debunking of the uh, Ford yeah. uh, legend there, but it's yeah. great. And Sean, I, I, you know, your, your comments about customers and yeah. this obsession with entrepreneurs sometimes. So you look at you know, the cloud industry 
right? You know, the, yes. these companies that for years, you know, not a lot of years because the industry is relatively new, but they were born of the tech world, well, many yeah. of them. And their whole thing was get the greatest code, get it out there, compete on price, compete on this, get big, you know, move around like that. And the customer was, you know, somewhere in the mix, but fairly far down. And Sean, I tell you, over the last nine to 12 months, every single one of the major cloud vendors has put customer success, not customer satisfaction, not customer loyalty, and those are great, but customer success at the top of what they're doing. And somehow, somewhere, I think it shows the rapid maturation of the cloud industry, even though some of the companies are pretty young, but it also shows in a broad sense that the tech industry overall and the entrepreneurial minded companies in there are finding that, you know, the greatest code in the world isn't going to matter if you can't pair that with a slavish devotion to what customers need. And I wonder if that conforms to how you're seeing things these days. Yeah. I mean, so certainly with my sort of shifting to my venture capitalist hat, right? Like, yeah. This is a this is a trend that we see way before the companies are even imagining making it onto like your top ten largest cloud company list, right? Yeah. Like we're we're talking about we're meeting with companies who have thousands of dollars of annualized revenue instead of billions of dollars of of annualized revenue, right? But I I actually think we've seen the same thing kind of from the the bottom up that you've seen from these large companies down, yeah. And I actually think. It's something that I really appreciate about how you talk about cloud in your Cloud Wars series. Yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of other people try to draw really firm lines on, well, this is cloud computing and this is not cloud computing. You know, like, well, this part of the stack fits in and, oh, that's, that's infrastructure, not cloud or, or whatever the, the case may be. And I think the mistake there is that, like, the cloud, like, the cloud is really not a technology solution in and of itself, but it's really a business solution and that it lets companies do things that they, I think, would have always wanted to do if they could have, but this new paradigm is allowing them to do it. The analogy that often I think about when I think about sort of this transformation that is the cloud is when people get that paradigm right, it allows the business users to get much closer to the problem space. And, And the analogy I often think of is my Dad, his first job, or one of his first jobs out of college, I guess it wasn't his first, but one of his first jobs out of college was, a, was to be a COBOL programmer for PPG. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and he basically built in code what today people in a place like PPG would do in Excel. There was this intermediary between the CFO of PPG and the financial model, which was my father and his team of people's COBOL code. Right. And then Dan Bricklin uh-huh. and, and those guys introduced yeah. PhysiCalc. And all of a sudden, yeah. the finance department didn't need programmers to run sensitivity analyses and build financial models. Right. They, they could do it themselves because there was this new technology paradigm called a spreadsheet. When I yeah. think about the cloud, like it's the same kind of thing. We're taking business users and we're bringing them right into the to the center of it. And so I think for, for example, like the fact that Microsoft is sort of so far up the list, that may seem somewhat counterintuitive to people, but it's like, look, at the end of the day, Microsoft's solving business problems with this technology paradigm, at least from the, I don't talk to nearly as many executives as you do, but from the things that, that I hear. And, and some of that is certainly kind of classic SaaS, but there's also these platform and, and infrastructure yeah. layers as well, right? And it's like, that's because they've sort of embraced this paradigm and, and many of the other ones on your list as well, obviously. 
And they're sort of thinking about it not as just like, well, here's the bits and bytes how it works, but in terms of like, here are the problems our customers have and how we can bring this paradigm to them to help them understand it. So uh, I think it's a super exciting time to be around this part of the technology. And, you know, we're excited at Bridgemere Ventures to be early investors in a lot of these embryonic companies that, you know, hopefully someday we'll, we'll be uh, delivering the same kind of value that the companies on your list are doing today. Well, knowing you, Sean, I wouldn't doubt that at all. I wouldn't <laughs> doubt it. But uh, hey, you'd mentioned Microsoft there. And I think in the context, Sean, of what you were saying, you know, these are business solutions. Yep. and take it out some of the technology realm without in any way discounting the significance of superb technology. But I think it was either six or nine months ago, but you know, relatively recently, the Microsoft CFO, Amy Hood, said at an investor's conference, she said, I really couldn't care less whether the revenue comes to us in our, our SQL products, you know, the traditional on-premise yep. stuff or the cloud. She said it makes no difference to us because we see this as an unbroken continuum, because that's how the customers look at this. Some stuff's going to stay on premise, some will move to the cloud. And if a company is able to provide a platform that allows for each, putting the customer at the center, then that's going to be a huge benefit. And so, Sean, I think as you describe that dynamic about it, they become business solutions which allow business people at all levels of a company to do things they couldn't do before, I think that's the real magic. So I was glad to hear somebody, you know, from your vantage point say that I think it's yeah. legitimate. Sometimes it's stuff about getting overly caught up in, oh, well, that's SaaS, or that's infrastructure, and that's public cloud info, you can't confuse, blah, blah. And I think that more and more customers, they don't care about the internal inside the industry acronyms. They, they just don't care. Give me this stuff in as broad a combination as you can that allows me yes. to become wildly successful as a business person. That does, does that pass your sniff test these days? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I hadn't heard that quote before, but my reaction to that quote is that that's exactly right. The thing she should care about is less technology line of business and more like the attributes of that revenue, you know? Yeah. How yeah. likely is that revenue to recur? And if it recurs more from SQL than from the cloud, then you could, I think, make a good argument that the SQL revenue is actually more valuable, right? How likely is the, the customer to not just to renew the contract, but maybe to increase the contract, right? And so I think, and this is one of the, the weird things, like, especially as it relates to, you know, SaaS as part of cloud, right? Like, subscription revenue is certainly more valuable than transactional revenue. Yes. And I think... Yes. But that's a different point than, than the point on like what line of business is it. So I would certainly rather have my customers pay me a dollar every month than pay me a dollar once. That, that makes sense. And I think Wall Street is correctly rewarding companies with recurring revenue models, with net negative churn, all that stuff. And, and obviously that flows down all the way to the early stage companies that we're working with as we try to help them figure out how to get value from their customers on a recurring basis and expansion revenue and all that kind of stuff. But the mechanism of delivering that, I think, is has somehow gotten conflated sometimes in conversations with the pricing model itself. I was at a Workday event recently, and Workday was talking about its recent acquisition of a company called Adaptive Insights. And yep. the people at work, they said, you know, when we go talk to big global companies about moving their financial applications to the cloud, he said, understandably, you know, they're quite thoughtful or in some cases cautious about that. But what they say is, hey, do you have a planning? Because we could really use help with yeah. that. And if we get That's proof right. that that works, 
right? So the adaptive insights, they said, not only solved an immediate need, but it's a door opener toward these future opportunities. So I, I think, again, this, it shows that inside, you know, inside the layers of the acronyms that we in the tech industry put together, there's a whole different set of externally customer-driven things that are forcing some of these changes so that attitude among the, the technology vendors back to the, our points about customer success yeah. and what you said, put the customer at the middle. I think we're really just starting to see the beginning of that and this other piece that's coming in now of trust, right? That's that right. Benioff and Nadella and McDermott and these other people saying, you know, if you can't work with a tech vendor that you trust, and if that tech vendor can't earn your trust, you know, that relationship's going nowhere. The other part of that, right, is that if you think about the FP&A process before and after yeah. in those organizations, right, to me, that's also part of just, I mean, the, the name itself even kind of, kind of implies it, right? That, there's this other piece of the whole moving things to the cloud and sort of the large sense of what we're talking about here today, not, not maybe the, the technical sense, but the, the broadest sense of this, this technology paradigm, right? Like the, what also happens when you start doing that stuff is you start layering in the ability to automate and predict things that were just unimaginable yeah. before. And I think yeah. from, robotic, from robotic process automation to machine learning to sort of true deep learning AI, like that's going to be a big part of this going forward as well. And I think you know, we didn't, I don't have any inside information on it, but I certainly was familiar with adaptive insights. And then it feels like a, just a brilliant app acquisition from a workday perspective because it, it does give them a different touch point in the FBNA to bring this kind of mega trend in tr through that part of the house as well. So that makes a ton of sense. G getting back to your point on, on trust as well, though, well, so many things have changed since when I, 15, 20 years ago, when I was selling software as an entrepreneur myself, the one thing that hasn't changed is that people still buy software from people at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah. if you if the person across the table from you isn't a really trusted as not an order taker or not someone who's just trying to meet their quota, but a trusted partner, it's really hard to get the kind of deals done that, that all these companies need to get done, kind of no matter how, where they are in the maturity spectrum. And I, I think, you know, the executives that you mentioned, they've been doing this for a long time. And I think the success of those companies really comes back to the fact that they're not viewed just as somebody who's, who's walking in and saying, you know, here's how this newfangled algorithm works, but they're coming in and saying like, trust me, this will make your business run better and we will partner with you on it. We don't just want to be a vendor, but we want to be a partner. And I think a continue refocusing on that is just, is just healthy for the industry overall as well. It is, Shauna. And let me toss out one thing. I'm, I'm usually pretty spacey on details and statistics, and maybe I am on this. We'll have to do some research later and try to figure it out. But <laughs> I, I was talking to the chief product officer from Adaptive Insights, and he said that, he said, if you think about it, he said in the on-premise world, he said companies would have every intention of doing, you know, a superb job of financial planning. But yeah. he said the average time for a Fortune 500 company, maybe a Fortune 1000 company, to complete the financial planning process using traditional technology was 74 days. So he said, you're already close to a quarter into the year before you've completed your plan. So it, right. he said it was just one of those things that uh, either wasn't delivering enough value that it could have or should have. And it also sort of flipped open that 
need for this to be an ongoing, backward-looking, corrective process instead of one where everybody's focused on here's today and what's building off into the future, and can we be looking more at opportunities instead of historic reconciliation? So, uh, again, I think some of the things that you're describing here with trust, with the customer success, those sorts of things, and how these new technologies allow people to behave and think and pursue incentives and opportunities in ways they never could before. To me, that's part of what's so exciting. And uh, Sean, I, and, that's, I, I, and that's why it's and that's why it, at a billion point was a one point five billion. I mean, it was not a small acquisition. Yeah, by it. Yeah. I mean, that's why that acquisition makes a ton of sense, though, right? Because that's like. That's crazy business value that, that yeah. Workday is, is bringing in. Uh, and Sean, just, you know, again, not, not getting too wonky with the, the numbers here, but when, whatever it was, four, five, six months ago, when Salesforce bought MuleSoft, and yeah. I saw some of these people saying, oh, they overpaid, you know, $7.4 billion. They shouldn't have yeah. paid more than, you know, seven point two. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, when actually now Salesforce at their recent event said, you know, the big problem customers have is tying together, in a, you know, all these different data sets. And MuleSoft yeah. is right in the middle of that. So anyhow, I, I don't mean to be overly well, but, critical, but sometimes, man, what, there's people that are just losing sight. What is the bigger play here? Not the nickels and dimes of the acquisition, but the billions of dollars of value you can unlock for your customers. That's right. And, I mean, and obviously, this is convenient as an early stage investor to say, but like, have they looked at the balance sheet that these guys have? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't think anybody's watched, like, like, the point is, they're going to need to buy partner and build and some ratio for each of them the yeah. future right and yeah and they've got the cash to do it like th these companies make a ton of sense again from from where i sit really early in the the ecosystem obviously from a funding perspective well heck we, we'd expect you to have you know a, a point of view on that sean sure sure, sure. yeah sure. i mean I, I realize it's a, it's a very unbiased opinion companies should pay Lots and lots of money <laughs> to, to acquire companies, says the early stage investor. Like, I, I get that. Uh, but, but for what it's worth, we are not investors, unfortunately, in either Adaptive Insights or MuleSoft. And still, as an outsider, it just looks like, yeah, that's, those are no-brainers from, from yeah. my side. So, Sean, tell us a little bit about, and I know this has been implicit in a lot of the things that you've said throughout our conversation here, but your own entrepreneurial background, how's that help you as a VC and at Carnegie Mellon. So my background is I was a student at Carnegie Mellon, was working with a number of folks here, left to do my first startup, did three startups kind of consecutively. The, the first one was sold to uh, Morgan Stanley. The second one was actually LinkedIn's first acquisition. And the third was acquired by a, a private equity roll-up. And it, each of those had plenty of good days and plenty of tough days. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think when you're signing up to help entrepreneurs, whether that's as an investor or as a, you know, advisor, faculty member, whatever, there's really no substitute for having, having experienced both those really good days and those, those really bad days because entrepreneurship is tough. And what entrepreneurs need often is a little bit of of empathy and perspective and it's really helpful to have had those experiences yourself when you're sitting down 
uh, with the entrepreneurs and, and helping them through whatever challenge they're at. Because, and I remember this from the, from my own entrepreneurial journey, you know, I would be facing something down and it would feel like, man, this is the scariest thing I bet any entrepreneur has ever experienced. <laughs> uh -huh. Right. Uh -huh. And then three weeks later, it'd be like, nope, nope. I found a new scariest thing. Right. And, and, and with, <laughs> With the benefit of hindsight, you realize that like this is just part of the roller coaster that is solving problems with unknown solutions, and even the problems aren't always f fully understood. And and so you know that's going to be high beta activities, and it's and it's important to sort of keep that perspective. And it's been I think helpful in both of those capacities to have spent time as an entrepreneur, you know, myself before kind of as they say in the business, they're switching sides to the table as an investor and a, and a faculty member here at CMU. Sean, last thing I wanted to ask yeah. you about is you're out on the front lines. You see these early stage companies and often young people, but not always young people, but entrepreneurs mm -hmm. coming to you, they got a gleam in their eye. I think I can do some here. What's your sense of the pace of innovation today relative to, you know, over the last decade? And if you can extend that, your thought on this pace of innovation a couple years into the future. Yeah, I mean, so certainly the quick summary is it's definitely accelerating, which I think is a good thing. I've been saying this for 10 years, so this is not a statement about any political things at all. I just think that the world has lots of problems and entrepreneurs are a critical part to solving them. And so we yeah. need more innovators to be helping solve those problems because there's just a lot of things that need solutions and people obsessing about those problems and coming up and testing solutions. It's just just a really good thing for everybody. But maybe the, the most interesting analog for this would be to actually tie it back to a CMU story because I think it does illustrate sort of the interest and acceleration of this trend. So when I was a grad student um, at CMU, and, and I think actually, Bob, I, I first met you when I, that was yes. one of the hats I wore and I was with yeah. our mutual friend, uh, Richard Florida. You know, I would tell people that, that I wanted to be an entrepreneur someday, and they would sort of, in so many words, say something that seemed you like, well, is that because you don't think you can get a job in, in banking or something? <laughs> and then they, they would typically like send me, you know, send me to like the crazy, to the, to the crazy professors and I love them, but, but Richard probably uh, is, is that he, Richard is absolutely a genius, 100%, but he's kind of a crazy genius. And that's yes. it. Like, yes. like, uh. Um, and so, that, so that's where guys like me ended up 20 years ago. And, and that was fun. I mean, Richard continues to be a friend and just awesome. So I love that. But, it, but also it's not lost on me that it was sort of the, the edges of campus for sure. We just opened a brand new building here on campus that was put together by a number of alumni, but most notably David Tupper, the, the hedge fund manager yeah. and now owner yeah. of the, the Carolina Panthers, maybe more famously. But he and a, and a number of other friends and alum of the school kind of created this new amazing building on campus. And so I think it's pretty undisputed that the nicest building on campus right now is the David A. Tepper building. And I would argue that almost equally without argument, the nicest space in the entire Tepper building is the Schwartz Center for Entrepreneurship, which I think is not just, that's not a just a random fact. The reason that's the nicest built part of the nicest building on campus is about entrepreneurship and innovation today is because students today, when they come to campus, come to CMU specifically to learn and study innovation and entrepreneurship. Yes. And it has gone from the edge of the campus with the crazy, but, but, <laughs> yeah. but brilliant professors to like the heart of Carnegie Mellon and the thing that the president talks about every time he stands, stands up. 
And I've certainly benefited from that as an entrepreneurship faculty member, but I think it also just reflects like society's increasing interest on in that. And, and I think that, so people caring about that is great. And then all of the tech trends that, you know, you've chronicled as well as anybody, not just here, but sort of through your whole career, right? The pace of all those trends are only accelerating and problems that, as we said earlier, were Adam's problems are now bit problems. And that, yes. you know, that changes the, the pace that you can do these things. Like the combination of those two things actually leaves me firmly in the optimistic category, because I think all those challenges that need to be solved, the confluence of those two things increases the chance of us solving a lot of those problems. And so I think it certainly has accelerated over the last 10 years. And I'm really optimistic about it continuing to accelerate into the future here. Oh, Sean, that's a, it's a great story. I love the optimism. And I, I want to just add a quick anecdote here before we wrap up about one of those crazy professors out on the fringe there at CMU. <laughs> I was co-teaching a, a class with uh, somebody here. And I, I went into his office a few weeks before the class started. We wanted to chat about this. And he stood up behind his desk. We shook hands, very friendly. And I, I looked and I said, hey, Richard, you know, what the hell's all over the front of your pants? And he looked down and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you got like green spray paint all over the front of your pants. <laughs> and he looks down and he points, goes, dude, diesel jeans, 300 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. went, oh, okay. <laughs> but so, you know, operating that on different wavelengths. But uh, now it was-, it was uh, And I'm sure Richard was the only faculty member with diesel jeans at, at oh, that yeah. point in time on campus. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> Richard's amazing. He's a good friend of both of ours, but- uh, Fantastic, but, yeah. fantastic guy. But he's always seen the world, uh, not through quite the same filter right. that, that most of the rest of us. And uh, hey, Sean, I guess this has been a great conversation. And thank you so much for your time and insights. Th thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks. And, and also many thanks to all of you listeners for joining us here on Cloud Wars Live, where we explore the unfolding adventures of digital transformation and cloud computing and how those are profoundly changing how all of us live, work, play, learn, and experience the world. I hope you'll join us for other episodes of Cloud Wars Live. And please share your feedback with me at bobevanspa at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.